Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is the Midlife Athlete Podcast with me, Greg Ryan, and my friend and co-host, Jason Smith. Hello, Jason. How are you? Hi, Greg. I'm good. Very good. It's a, it's a cold November morning, and we're talking to a very hot uh, Brisbane uh, with Damon Languth. Hello, Damon. How are you? Hi, Greg. Hi, Jason. Very well. Excellent. So, Damon um, is an immunologist. Is that right, Damon? That is um, both uh, in pathology and seeing actual patients. All right. Okay. Excellent. Um, and you, you're, we have a mutual friend, Dr. Richard Breeze. Um, so if Richard's listening, hello, Richard. Um, and we've got Damon on today to talk up to us about the immune system and what it means to be, what it means, well, how it affects us as we get older and also hopefully how, how it, we can affect it uh, in, a, in, a, in a good way. So, uh, but part of all, part of our remit, uh, Damon, is we talk about talk to our guests about their exercise history. So I was just wondering, <laughs> would you like to enlighten us about your exercise history? Uh, yeah, well, most of my exercise history has been related to mountain biking. Okay, um, occasionally crashing into um, fairly solid objects. Yeah. Um, the 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 smallest one I crashed into was about two centimetres wide, it was a tree. <laughs> um, and I learned that when you're doing 30 k's an hour on a single track downhill, that even something only two centimetres wide does not yield. <laughs> uh, and I broke um, ribs two, three and four on the right. Right, plumbing. Ooh, quite high up. Painful. Yeah, yeah, well, that was where the tree hit. My friends oh, were somewhat right. amazed because they said, oh, we thought you'd be swearing. And I said, I can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do I do love uh, my favourite exercise is bushwalking. All right. Um, whether that so, be like multi-day things or just like a few hours. Excellent. Well, we, we, we're going to come back to that towards the end of the uh, the podcast, ask you a few, a couple more questions. But uh, today, uh, well, well, now we'd like to sort of dig into um, – the immune system, and because uh, we hear a lot about it, about how exercise can help it, um, but we just want to know sort of the more the specifics and how we go about doing that. Sure. So, the biggest thing is that not that it well exercise helps because it keeps you thin, uh, and really what you're doing is trying to keep your BMI in that group twenty to twenty five, uh, and if you are exercising almost certainly of any type. I mean, very few people, obviously some people with eating disorders, they're not healthy, but most people who keep their BMI between 20 and 25 are doing exercise of some form. Uh, and it's the exercise, whatever exercise you do, and you keep in that weight range. Now, you can manage to do bad things like occasionally go to KFC every week and somehow manage to exercise that off, but that's not the vast majority of people are in that BMI 20 to 25 range. Uh, and that um, the other biggest thing is that your immune system, as it's developing in the, say, first five years of life, is probably way more important than whatever you can do now. So if you're a midlife, mid-life athlete, uh, the things that you did way before you were a midlife athlete are going to be way more important. So the best example of that is if you are overweight as a small child, your immune system is not doomed, but it has been swayed hugely towards 
bad or negative outcomes. And that, and is there, is there any way of, of, of skewing that back? Yeah, yeah, becoming normal weight. Okay. But it is highly likely that that uh, burden at the start of your life is going to be to your detriment. And whilst you might skew it back towards normality, you might never achieve what it would have been if you had never been overweight in the beginning. And that's due to multiple things. We now know that the best data is, in fact, in allergy. So not an autoimmunity or immunodeficiency, but an allergy. Um, and there are three components. Um, being overweight for the first two years of your life, uh, consequence with that is usually that you're having a bad diet, low in fibre, and that that induces a different biodiversity in your gut and your skin, uh, and that sort of begets things, if you like, uh, and that predisposes you to things as you go on, let alone the metabolic conditions that go along with being overweight early. So, Damon, does it does the immune system? <clears throat> I mean, you've talked there about the importance of it when when you're a very small child. Um, does does it does anything happen to the immune system as you get older? And 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 the analogy I'm drawing is obviously we've talked about muscles, for example, and, and muscle decline and VO2 decline. And does anything happen to the immune system, or does it stay? I wouldn't say no, constant because obviously you can 60, change it. There, from about sixty, there's an immune senescence. So um, obviously that's on average, but from about 60, and sadly in the immune system, things go downhill. But that's very variable. So we know that if you look at 60s, 70s and 80-year-olds, the response to vaccines gets less by about 5% each decade. So even with really effective vaccines, um, there is a new uh, herpes zoster vaccine called Shingrix. Um, so in the 50s, it's 99.95% effective. So in other words, pretty amazingly good. But it's down to 86 or 80% in the 80s. We don't have data in the 90s, but it will be lower. Um, so this, this is a very effective vaccine. It gauges, engages both the B and T cells, provides superb protection. But yet, if you receive that in your 80s, you're not going to get as good a protection as if you had it in the 50s. We can also see that very much illustrated by COVID. So COVID mm. has given us a great example of the many features of immune senescence. So that number one in COVID uh, is the handover from the innate immune system to the adaptive immune system. So the innate immune system is relatively fixed. It does actually change, but it is relatively fixed. And then in COVID, the first step in the aged is that you get this unmitigated inflammation. And instead of going, okay, we can't defeat this, we'll use the second arm of our immune system, the first part, the innate immune system, keeps driving. Then we get a lack of induction of the second part, the adaptive part of the immune system, to control things. And that, in a way, is a sort of corollary of what happens in general, less excitingly so and less dramatically so, but in general in the immune system, that's what's happening. You're getting a less effective adaptive immune system and a overactive innate immune system. So that doesn't so happen. So, so how, so how can we? Obviously, we we can't affect directly uh, the innate. So, how do we affect the adaptive? Well, how, how, the, as, the as we get older, we, we we can't really. If you're healthy and a normal weight and you're fit, you can't make it better. 
Right. <laughs> what you can do is make sure you don't make it worse. And right, okay. A large number of people on Earth have made it worse. So the things that make it worse are uh, chronic stress, and largely that's the, the serious things are immune stress, probably things that you can't actually alter yourself, like getting an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis. So given that that's mostly women in their 20s, they didn't really have much, they couldn't alter that. But it's quite possible that even day-to-day stress uh, in the West, um, which we all have, uh, living in the style of life that we have, now it's, it's, it's lauded, you know, it's very nice, but we all work, well, many of us work long hours. We have less good sleep. Uh, our diets may not be related terribly to what they once were. Um, we may have less fibre in our diet uh, and um, we may uh, do some somewhat exciting things like alcohol and other substances that at the time seem good but long-term are most certainly bad. Mm. And, uh, Damon, we, we, um, <clears throat> we have talked quite a lot about... Um, different states of exercise so low intensity exercise and high intensity exercise and um you know one of the things that we've also looked at is heart rate variability and uh it's it's, it's one thing that i'm a, a a big fan of in terms of measuring and um what's quite clear is that you can i choose my words carefully i suppose but but influence let's say your heart rate variability by the sort of exercise you do so if you do some low intensity exercise and you've got a low heart rate variability it does tend to sort of drive it back up again it, that that's not therefore improving my immune system what well, i guess what you're saying is it's, it's just taken away some of the the damaging bits if you like and almost taking it back to normal yeah i i think you kind of want to have an immune system as if you were intermittently quite active but occasionally not that active but make sure that every day you have some level of significant activity you know and, and whilst you know people have looked at all oh, most of the focus is you're probably aware is what what's the minimal level of activity people can do and get away with it that's my kind of cynical view of life <laughs> um, uh, and that instead of because people buy into that, they go, oh, I'll only have to do 20 minutes three times a week. I'll do that. And in fact, you know, if you do 20 minutes every day, almost certainly that's going to be better. Um, you don't probably have to do an hour and a half every day. But if that activity keeps you in the normal body mass index for your age and race, and that, that's important, ethnicity is important. Um, so that certain ethnicities get diseases at lower body mass indexes at, uh, than others do. So certainly in Aboriginal Australians, um, I know from colleagues who are Vietnamese, um, so they're a small people. Uh, they get diseases of uh, what we say Western lifestyle at lower body mass, mass indexes than Westerners do. Um, and that's for probably from historic reasons. So, in other words, unfortunately, those people probably have to try hard, try harder, um, probably because of the sort of thrifty gene hypothesis. If, if your populace, your ethnic background has been starved of food for longer, you develop genes which enable you to exist in that starvation state. And then those genes don't switch off when, you're, when you get to go to KFC. And I, I know I don't have anything against KFC. It tastes quite nice. I think I have it every two years or something. But... but in other words, if you can go to the supermarket and buy anything you want, 
your genes don't adapt to that straight away. Mm. And the immune system's not going to be immediately affected by that. It's not like you have one hamburger and your immune system gives up the ghost. But if you do that repetitively, and we know that, like I was talking about um, chronic immunologic stress, obesity gives you chronic immunologic stress. So the fat, fat tissue is chronically active. People think of it, well, it's fat, can't do anything. But it's incredibly metabolically active. It's just in a different way. It's not a helpful metabolically active. And almost certainly that acts as a negative drain on the function and regulation of your immune system. You you touched on the uh, gut, uh, what happens in the gut. And there's been talk from uh, Tim Spector, the... Uh, um, is he an endocrinologist over here? Uh, I don't but he's he's, I part, think... he's he's quite hard with the COVID, um, a lot of the COVID studies over yes. here. But he his his thing is is you know gut biome and how that's a potential for the future in terms of how that's going to affect our health and how we, and and very specific targeted medicines based on our gut biome. Yeah, so I, I was wondering if you could. Sorry, Greg. I, I think we're a long way from targeted stuff. Um, we're at the beginning parts of that. So the NIH uh, in the US has spent millions and millions, really appropriately, looking at inflammatory bowel disease, something that's in, in, you know really quite closely related to the gut microbiota. Uh, and they even have had like multiple normal people who've volunteered to have scopes every four months, uh, and their entire DNA of their microbiome is assessed. Now, you can imagine that's that's relatively expensive. Yeah. Uh, and compared to data sets with both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and there are significant changes that occur, but not everyone has the same changes. Everyone has changes. They're just not always the same. And there are some uh, probably an, uh, an inappropriate term, but flavours to that change, um, and that we think that involves lots of parts of the autoimmune system so that many autoimmune diseases, including, say, rheumatoid arthritis and vasculitis, may well be related to not just gut microflora, but mouth and nose mucosa microflora. So people often forget the, the mouth is part of the gut. Uh, and so there is a very good correlation between periodontitis and the development of rheumatoid arthritis. And so... Wow. Bugs in your mouth, and this is probably mostly related to smoking, so that uh, if you smoke and you have a certain genetic profile, the so-called um, shared DR4 epitope, that bugs in your mouth change. They present different things to the immune system, and then the immune system can adapt to that and try and attack them and also perhaps cause inflammation in yourself, which if you're unlucky enough, eventually lead to rheumatoid arthritis. Crikey, That's never heard of that. <laughs> right. So the, <clears throat> I think the whole kind of, um, as I understand Tim Spector's sort of, and I think Zoe app is the is the thing that they're trying to develop. Yes. So you can try and get a, an idea of your gut microbiome. Um, and I think their idea is that if you can eat that balanced diet there's there's a the, the the tribe there's a tribe in africa that they keep referring to as a sort of almost idealistic gut microbiome the hadza tribe yeah and uh it's, it was quite interesting actually looking at the hadza 
tribe sort of profile gut micro compared to sort of a normal western diet which which is sort of almost devoid of color on this spectrum of of, of gut microbiome but but i think so what, what you're saying is if you can if we can all get a balanced diet um of lots of different things fiber fruits nuts and, and all that kind of stuff that, that, that that's beneficial um yeah, it's going to help that. To be honest, um, when we say uh, balanced diet, I think most of that is for so people just don't reject everything we say. Right. Um, and I, I don't think fast food is in a balanced diet, to be honest. Hmm. That doesn't mean I don't eat it because I may not live what I say, but um, I'm fairly sure alcohol consumption, cigarette consumption uh, and fast food are not in that tribe's diet. Um, if you look at the Okinawans, who are the longest lived, one of the longest lived groups of people on earth, um, their diet is quite different to that tribe you mentioned. So I don't think there is one diet that actually is the best. And it probably does depend on your genetic background or ethnic background, whatever you want to call it, um, and what you can tolerate. Because you can't, for, if you've learned to eat bad things, you will always eat mm. so called bad things and so that's where we need to really change things very early on in life we know that children who do not learn to eat bitter foods are fatter okay. so that the so-called you know i don't like my greens kind of thing that that's just rubbish that that's a societal uh kind of cultural aspect um and that if you have got no other food kids don't starve themselves it doesn't happen. Um, and so if you look at the Okinawan diet, they have an, what, what, if you look at their diet, you think, how could anyone eat that? So they have an incredible amount of undigestible carbohydrates based on seaweed-like substances. And they do incredibly well from that. But if you look at Georgians, so some populations of Georgians also live very long in life. And this is living, in, but they all live in a relatively rural lifestyle. They have larger families, but they have uncomplicated lives. Mm. And in a way, we have to accept the good with the bad. So we want to live in a nice house and have a nice TV and perhaps some artwork on the wall uh, and then go out to bars and restaurants. But that may not actually be the best way we need to live. Um, and, that, and that's a difficult thing. You, you can't just tell people, look, do this, because as you know, People don't do this. Um, uh, and social media and commercial enterprise uh, is kind of changing. <coughs> Sorry. Um, and, uh, and so, but we have to try and change things for younger people because that's where it starts. So we're, we're talking about, you know, midlife athletes. So pretty much everyone presumably listening to this podcast is probably reasonably fit of a normal BMI, and you, you can't make yourself better. Uh, and you are almost certainly not drinking too much. You're not smoking at all. Um, and those are the things you can do. Um, to some extent, the normal age-relating changes that occur after 60 are beyond your control. Whilst mm. autoimmune disease and relative immune deficiency increase, that largely is beyond your control. You can make that a lot worse by doing the things that I mentioned you shouldn't. But to some extent, 
uh, age-related changes are going to happen. Um, you mentioned menopause before. So mm. menopause is actually quite interesting because menopause changes the autoimmune disease risk completely so that prior to menopause, most autoimmune diseases, not all, have a significant uh, female predominance. After menopause, it's one-to-one. Why, and that's why is it... So why why is it predominantly in women? That well, because estrogen is needed to allow women to have children. So uh, I could, um, I think um, Dr. Breeze might ex- agree with this, that uh, the baby is a parasite. <laughs> and, it's an invasive and he's had invasive. four, so he should, he's had four, so he should know. He's an inv- they're an invasive parasite. Now, they're an invasive parasite we need, but... <laughs> Immunologically, I can say that because I'm I'm quite interested in the immunology of pregnancy. It's really quite an amazing thing that the whole female body has changed to allow the acceptance of a organism living inside that is not you. Wow! Yeah, that is a, that is a mix, like that. you know that is a mix of the dad and the mum, or the parents, if we want to say that the genetic parents. Um, and that to be able to allow that, incredible immune, immunologic changes occur in the uterus and to some extent in the woman's body as well. So that for women, uh, pregnancy is a time where autoimmune disease is increased in risk and overwhelming sepsis, so certainly from viral uh, causes like influenza, chickenpox and COVID, are hugely increased. So there are huge changes that occur. And we, we think they're normal. I mean, they are normal, i.e. they're a usual thing to occur. But what we don't appreciate is that there are huge immunologic challenges to that. Uh, and the baby is allowed to develop um, through immune suppression at a local level. Sometimes that immune suppression occurs outside the uterus and affects the, um, the pregnant mother. Um, if we didn't have those changes, pregnancy would never occur. Uh, and that when a woman goes through menopause, uh, estrogen obviously drops down uh, and that um, that cyclical change that occurs stops and that the risk for autoimmune disease comes back to equivocal, one-to-one. In most, in all of the diseases that are female predominant, after menopause, the risk is one-to-one. So, but what happens with HRT? Does If they, if they start... Change the, oh, does, does I, the, does I don't think we've got any good evidence with HRT, what happens to autoimmune right. disease. Right, okay. Um, I, I think because it's given in a non-physiologic way that it might have different effects, but you might expect it to have on average an increase in autoimmune disease compared to not being on HRT, but I don't know of any strict evidence for that. Hmm. So, 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 sorry, sorry, Jason. So, in, so in essence, you've got um, the, the immune system is almost set, well, not in stone, but it, it's fairly, it's fairly, um, uh, div, it, it's developed early on in your first five years of life. That sets you up for the rest of your life. You can influence it a little bit, um, but if you're staying uh, relatively fit and healthy, you're going to be okay. Uh, after the age of sixty things do seem to change um but uh you just got to try and maintain a healthy lifestyle exactly and you know the odd thing is that after the age of 60 
having a slightly increased BMI increases your chance of survival. Okay. Uh, because you can survive, because one of the big things after that is organ reserve. So that having a BMI at 25 to 30 in a 60 to 70-year-old actually allows you to survive severe illness more. Okay. That's not an ad for getting fat early, though. <laughs> um, you don't need to prepare 10 years before that. Um, so, sadly, if, you know, if your BMI is 20 and you're 65, you're actually going to be worse off, not from sort of day-to-day things, but if you were to develop severe pneumonia, uh, severe car accident with multi-trauma, you actually do less well because your reserves are less. Uh, and and that's that, that you can't tell that to an individual, but that's a population effect. Right. Mm. Okay. So we have this baseline. Um, lot, a few people that we've had on <clears throat> different expertise and what have you, and they, there's there's this phrase that comes out called inflammation. <laughs> Inflammation's bad. But what we haven't really nailed down, and we were hoping maybe you could help us a little bit, is what what does that mean, or what what does that mean in the context of the immune system? So we well, know that certain things gives rise to inflammation, but we don't quite know then what happens beyond that. Sure. So I mean, inflammation is a broad term, um, mm. and there are I don't know I could probably come up with twenty five types of inflammation that could occur. Uh, and broadly, we have acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. So acute inflammation is when you truly feel sick. You know, you get a viral infection. You feel like death for a few days, or if you get COVID-19 into 70, you feel like you're really close to death for a few days or longer. But then there are many diseases which we have induced which give chronic low-grade inflammation, a different group of cells. And so they occur in diseases often which we don't consider inflammatory, like type 2 diabetes, which is actually incredibly inflammatory, just that we don't measure it with, say, proteins like CRP, uh, but it is actually inflammatory. That's how it destroys our tissues. Um, osteoarthritis, incredibly inflammatory, just very different inflammation. Uh, and that inflammation in the brain from, say, Alzheimer's disease, people don't think of that as inflammatory disease, but it is. Um, so you have to be sort of careful about what you mean by that term. And, in fact, I would say that the greatest contributor to bad outcomes in the West is chronic inflammation. Yeah. So that we, we we can survive all sorts of things now. I myself have survived overwhelming sepsis through no through no no skill of my own to entirely due to intensivists and renal physicians. So I, I got uh, leptospirosis in Fiji, and uh, I I literally almost died. I had uh, creatinine of eight hundred and eighty, a lactate of six. Uh, belly rumen of 100, uh, um, sats of sort of 80, uh, wasn't looking good. And that will have harmed my body forever. So those things are obviously out of our control. That was just, a, you know, most people who get leptospirosis don't get sick. And so uh, my renal physician tells me I shouldn't take non-steroidals because it might make things worse. I ignore that sometimes. Um, but... Episodes of acute inflammation engender chronic inflammation to some degree. So that in where my large field is autoimmune disease, 
every time someone has a flare of their autoimmune disease, they are engendering to some degree chronic inflammation. And that it's the chronic inflammation that leads to long-term damage, i.e. pain, joint dysfunction, tendon dysfunction, renal impairment, cardiac impairment, atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, stroke, etc. Okay. So, but in terms of, I mean, I was trying, trying to say, if that, if that is, if you're having this chronic inflammation, things like stress will, we know, can cause that as well. Um, so, but what we're trying to say is, yeah, keep exercising <laughs> as, as best you can. Well, exactly. That's, that's going to help. Most people who exercise, that time is relatively stress-free. Mm. So it's kind of a one plus one equals three. Yeah. So if you're sitting on your bike, if you're riding on the road, if you're walking on a mountain trail, if you're walking on your treadmill or on your exercise bike, presumably you're not super stressed about the works of today because most people use that time to sort of digitally detox or mentally detox. So I think there's a one plus one equals three activity in that kind of exercise. So it's not just exercise itself. It's the fact that you get to think about nothing else except what you're doing at the time. Mm. I think what it does there, Greg, is <clears throat> we've talked about the balance between intense exercise and less intense exercise. And I think if that balance is switched more towards that intense exercise, you probably are going to induce some kind of stress, a different sort of stress than your everyday stress, but it is going to be stress on the body nonetheless. And so that's why that periodization piece that we've talked about where you're splitting the load uh, I, I think it's quite important, and, and, and I think that's following on from what you're saying, I think, Damon. Yeah, I also think uh, I certainly know from many of my patients who I try to engage in exercise is that if you don't involve an exercise physiologist, your chance of doing appropriate exercise is close to zero. You know, people say, oh, I'm walking more and more, and you're going, yeah, but you'll just be spending the same amount of energy. The human body adapts to doing bugger all very quickly. Uh, and you think you're doing more, but you're not because unless you've got someone next to you gauging you or, you know, some a digital machi machine, your, your iPhone or those kind of things, hmm. is that our body quickly adapts. And we're not talking about people who are fit here already. I'm talking about people who've had a severe illness and they're trying to get back to what they were or close to what they were before. And as you know, the human body loves homeostasis. It tries to stay at whatever level you are and whether that's level one or 100. Uh, and you have to unfortunately fight against that, and that, that's very difficult for humans because there's a link between your brain and your muscles and your nerves. And your muscles and your nerves tell your brain, we're doing okay. But they're not telling the truth. They're just telling their opinion of the truth. Uh, and that you really have to get people to understand that if you're not burning fat, if you're fat, you're wasting your time. Uh, and that, you know, you see so many people, they go and do exercise and they don't lose weight. Uh, and because they're not exercising at the right period for the right length, and all they do is increase their appetite. And I have become a big fan of exercise physiology, especially for my patients. Uh, and I try to get them enrolled. Um, I look after a lot of people with um, autoimmune myositis, so disease which attacks your muscles. Now, your muscles are horrendous things when they've been attacked. They just send out chemical signals that say, nah, no, you're short of breath. And you see people exercise and 
they're gasping for breath. Their PO2 is fine. They just have, you know, lactic acid uh, and other chemicals that are secreted to say, oh, we're stuffed. And the muscles have poor fat storage. They burn glycogen. You run out of glycogen. And as you know, it's like when you're an elite sports star, you run out of sugar and fat to burn and you stop. Uh, except these people don't actually run out of fat because they've got plenty of fat in their muscles. They just don't burn it. Um, so unless you engage in the appropriate exercise, and it doesn't have to be, it's usually not insane exercise. We're talking 20 minutes at five and a half Ks an hour on a two, two meter incline on a walker, on a um, walking machine for two nights a week. And suddenly they improve out of sight. Um, but it's convincing people that that's the appropriate way. You touched on something there about um, you uh, get your clients' uh, patients enrolled in, in into sort of some kind of exio exercise regime beforehand, and that touched with. Um, but Greg, you probably remember Ben Shalikum when we when we spoke mm, to him. Yeah, um, <clears throat> he gets his patients to do quite. I think it's about eight eight weeks, eight to ten weeks out yeah. before he starts treating them for for prostate cancer to to go on a, a quite strict walking walking regime. Um, and it's just struck me the parallels between what you were both 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 saying, and uh, it'd be interesting. I mean, he, he said he knew that was a sort of good medicine, but he he wasn't couldn't pinpoint why. But it, it seemed that maybe you, you can probably pinpoint it because of your background as an immunologist. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can't say that's going to help terribly in cancer. Look, it might, it, it possibly no way can do any harm. Mm. Um, but certainly being of optimal weight and fitness prior to any exercise or treatment for cancer, we know that uh, being obese increases your risk for most cancers, commonest one being breast cancer, of course. Um, we know that uh, being obese increases the chance that you ignore malignancy immunologically and that um, increases as age goes on because that is unfortunately what happens over 60 is that uh, you develop cells which are less good at attacking things they should and better at attacking things they shouldn't. Uh, and that, as I said, obesity modulates that. Um, and it may well be that moderate exercise, I, I don't think you need to do anything extreme, um, that giving some level of fitness prior to pretty much anything probably helps if you look at it on a population basis. Uh, Damien, you, you, you were saying about... Um that uh, we can't really improve on our immune system, we could, but we can make it worse. I was just wondering in terms of um, over-exercising and how that can have a detrimental effect, I was, or does it have a detrimental effect? And, and yeah, how, does that, how, do, how does that affect? Most, most of those people, I've, I've seen quite a few like Olympic-level athletes, usually in the late teens because their parents are the people that make them come along. Uh, and that swimmers, it may be an Australian thing, but and especially Queensland, because as you know, Queensland's the home of some ridiculous percentage of Olympic gold medalists in swimming. Um, and, uh, and you can imagine swimming up and down a pool pretty much every day uh, in an environment where your nasal mucosa is exposed to uh, environments where it's not supposed to be, so in a swimming pool, um, that you probably do alter your uh, nasal mucosa. Um, plenty of the swimmers, if you look at it, you know, 
Um, plenty of uh, Australian swimmers have had respiratory illnesses, often termed mystery illnesses. I don't think there's that much mystery about it. Um, but fairly famous swimmers have you know, swum and have won Olympic medals with you know, pneumonia. And you do see overtraining effects. And I've had debates with various people, and I think women are more, more um, susceptible to this than men um, because I think women are more under pressure to have their body weight controlled. Uh, they also are more likely, of course, to have bio body fat because women have greater body fat than men, it's just how or different places, uh, and that they're judged against that. And most of the people that I've seen are young women in the sort of 16 to 25 year old group, and they're just that they are unfortunately those people compared to say their friend next door who looks probably much the same get more infections, and you're asked to fix them. And unfortunately, when you reply to their parents, I wouldn't be swimming that much. It doesn't go down well. Um, <laughs> but but, but, in ter- but in terms of, um, I mean, I, I used to treat uh, an elite 110-meter uh, hurdler. Yeah. And he, he had this rule of thumb. If, if he felt ill and it was more like just a bit of a head cold, his sinuses were bunged up, he would continue to train. If it was below the neck, i.e., he felt like he was he was he was, some, he was affecting sort of chest, he wouldn't train. Yeah, I, I was just wondering. I don't think there's any rhyme or reason in that. I, right. I think if you get an infection, you need to rest, not prolonged rest, but rest. Uh, and that, um, stre- you know, th- there's reasons why you feel really spacey and weird and tired and lethargic during an infection, and that's because a chemical called interferon gamma gets secreted and it goes into your brain. So interferon gamma binds into receptors into your brain and says, do bugger all. Don't don't go for a run and do a marathon today. Uh, and for most of us, you know, that's not harmful because you just go, yeah, I feel really tired. I'll not go to school. I, I think most of us, that kind of thing happened usually during school. So because you, you're intelligent enough to appreciate it, uh, and 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 know what's going on, but as an older adult, because we don't get that many viral infections as older adults, uh, we we don't get that so much. But the other thing about athletics is that, uh, or sports, is that people often do it together. So most adults don't mm-hmm. congregate in close groups all the time. So especially with say swimming or athletics, you've got maybe 30, 40 people in a squad. And, and that's not normal. You know, I, I go to work and, I mean, I work with 30 or 40 people, but I don't sit next to them all the time and I'm not doing the same thing as them. So I think some of the element is proximity. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, look, look, exercising when you're sick makes little sense. Uh, there and But prolonged rest also makes little sense as well. And so if you look at it on the bad side, many people get sick and then take two weeks off. Uh, you should do what you can, uh, and that's very difficult to give a guide. Um, but you know, one don't run a marathon day one, but day three maybe get into light exercise and build it up as quickly as you can. Hmm. But in, but in terms of overtraining, uh, for, not for the sort of the elite uh, or younger population, but sort of for us for us um, middle aged guys and and girls, what's um, when you start to, it, it, 
is there any evidence in terms of what it, what constitutes overtraining? No, and, not, uh, not, immuno- not immunologically. Right. Um, so uh, I can tell you that um, there's a phenomenon in Australia um, which we termed uh, um, uh, sports training rhabdomyolysis, largely brought on by personal trainers who maybe did a course for two weeks uh, and thrash people and uh i've seen we saw when this sort of phenomenon came around i saw quite a significant number of people who had cks of one hundred and fifty thousand. what should it be 20 to 100 <laughs> wow this is so ck's are cytokines aren't they yeah well no no see so creatinine kinase so oh, it's a right, muscle okay. enzyme so if you the if you look at linebackers in the american football league their CK can be 100,000 after the game. So these are guys that weigh 150 kilos. Some of that's fat, but a lot of it's muscle, and they're basically running from a standing start into some other dude as heavy as them, whacking each other's bodies together. But that's why people who play at you know high-level sports hurt after the game hmm. because they, in fact, damage their muscles, but... Because they are continuously exercising and training, they build their muscle strength up. Um, you see people uh, in, who, who haven't done that and then see a personal trainer and the personal trainer gets a bit over-enthusiastic and says, oh, oh I'll keep you going. And, and they, they've done significant harm by that. But I don't think it's very easy to tell someone in the middle age, 40s to 50s, who are fit. You know, I've got friends who cycle, I'm sure you guys do, uh, 500 k's a week on the bike. I, they they don't get sick, and I I don't think they're overdoing it. I I think that's insane because I don't like that, but uh, they do, and I don't think they're probably doing themselves any harm, apart from the uh, risk of physical trauma that goes along with riding on Brisbane roads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, external external forces. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of, one of my colleagues did threaten to ban all of his uh, his, um, his staff from riding due to the fact of having one staff member off every week from a cycling accident. Does that say more about the quality of Brisbane cyclists? Um, no, no, I don't think it's about the quality of the cyclists. I think it's the quality of the roads and the drivers. So, look, I, I think, um, look, if you're eating well, you're maintaining your body mass, and the key is to maintain it in that 20 to 25 volt, 25 area, and not be changing your weight all the time. So you shouldn't be going from 20 to 25. You're maintaining whatever looks like a healthy weight on you. You shouldn't be able to see tendons in your hands. So in other words, people should not be commenting on you saying, "God, you look thin." Yeah. Um, they should say, "Oh, you look. You, you, you know, you should keep a stable weight." and do whatever exercise you like, as long as it's not harming you. So in other words, unfortunately, exercise is associated with injury. Um, So as you know, if you've ever twisted your knee, you have a 100% chance of developing osteoarthritis in that knee. That doesn't mean that you're going to need a knee replacement. And that's a good example of chronic inflammation. So people don't sort of think, oh, like I twisted my knee, now I have chronic inflammation in my knee. Because, of course, there's no, you don't feel it. It's not hot. It's not swollen. But there are changes in the bone that will continue to occur lifelong. And that may cause you trouble in your 90s if you get there. 
it may cause you trouble in your 50s. And it depends on a whole lot of things that we largely don't understand. So your bone density, the type of synovium you have, the uh, polymorphisms in various genes that you have, and the ongoing damage that you do. So in, in Australia, um, obviously netball is a big sport. Netball is possibly the worst sport invented for women ever. And, and obviously men play that as well. But, but for a woman, netball is truly atrocious. Because I don't know if you know, but women's knees on average compared to men's knees are at a different angle. So there's a five-degree difference. And that difference makes a huge amount when you stop and start and land on a extended knee. So a man's is, is, five... is, is, Jay, sorry, Jay, Jason's looking. Um, his, his, his forehead's raised a bit. Basically, the, the pelvis is wider in women because of childbirth. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the angle at which your femurs come down and then meet uh, your knees, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called the Q angle, and it's it's slightly greater in 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 women. Um, but I, I think also, I mean, going on what you're saying about from as a, as a physio, uh, a lot of times when patients develop arthritis is because also because the rehab once you've after you've twisted your knee they don't get back they don't get they don't regain their strength properly i see asymmetries in people's strength all the time uh which is why they predominantly people are knocking on my door um but that's that's an aside (laughs) yeah and and, but but to some degree you know we we don't appreciate that when we injure joints we get a type of chronic inflammation in that joint now that's Mm. Not going to that's not going to affect the rest of our life. That's not a, going to cause systemic problems, but it will yeah. cause a problem in that joint. But you may not appreciate that. So you may get you may die and never go, oh my knees don't hurt. And in fact, as we know now, uh, radiologic imaging of joints has almost no correlation with the degree of pain or suffering that person suffers from that joint. And what is important, as Greg you've said, is muscle strength around that joint. Um, yeah, and I, I, was, I, I, was, I always say to patients, you know, pathology and pain don't equate. Uh, you can have, you know, pr- you can look at look at some X-rays and they could be pretty horrific, and the patients in in you know, mild discomfort. And other people who look absolutely fine radiologically, and they're in all sorts of all sorts of discomfort. So, no, exactly. But to some extent, that we can use that analogy in conditions like uh, systemic lupus, so an autoimmune condition that can affect the kidney, or type two diabetes. So type 2 diabetes, obviously engendered by in large numbers of people being overweight, having a BMI of over 25 or lots of time over 40 in Australia and I know in the UK. Mm. And um, those people get scarring in tissues. Now, that's chronic inflammation. You don't feel that inflammation. You don't feel any different from day to day. But that inflammation is occurring at variable rates depending on your variable genes that you have. And that in some genetic backgrounds, so for instance, I know in Aboriginal Australians, your chance of developing end stage, i.e. not having kidneys that work, is much, much greater by a factor of about five than in a European. Uh, and so that inflammation is really important. It's something to know about. Um, and that even if you have type 2 diabetes and somehow you manage to get thin and that, that would be a, a, you know, a very... Uh, worthwhile experience is that you're probably not going to stop that inflammation to some degree. And so to go back to the start, you know, the first five years of life are really critical. 
because you're setting yourself up for not good things. And one thing I want to mention, um, the first five years really set yourself up, but it's the first 25 years where you develop all of your T-cell repertoire so now that your adaptive immune system pretty much meets most of the things it's ever going to meet. So most of us, after about 25, don't really get very sick from viral infections, except novel ones like COVID-19 or the yearly influenza virus. So we get a bit sick, but we don't get that sick. And if you have kids, you realise how sick they get. They feel terrible for three or four days. Or if you're a doctor, you ignore that and tell them to go to school. <laughs> um, but but that thing, you, so it's an education of the immune system, if you like. Mm-hmm. And then after that, for up to about 60, as I've said, we have this, uh, well, up to about 40, we have a continual renewal. The thymus gland continues to educate T cells. Uh, some have been 20 and 40, that stops. So what you're left with is what you're going to get for the rest of your life. So if you had bad education, you're going to have bad education from then on. And bad education occurs because of smoking, being overweight, having excessive stress. Now, that excessive stress, to be honest, is a lot of the time personally out of your control. So we're talking about severe mental illness, being in a war, being poor and having no food, those kind of things, which largely we can't wish away. But we know that if we look at children as foster children, and we look at their immunologic outcomes or cardiovascular outcomes, is that even when you are placed in a fantastic uh, adopted environment, your outcomes are not the same, I'm not talking educationally here, physiologically, as someone who was not adopted. Wow. And so that really shows you how important the brain is to both cardiovascular function but also immunologic function. Which is going to be a, a topic, hopefully, if I can secure another Australian uh, psychiatrist. We're going to talk about talk about the brain in a couple of weeks. So that'll be uh, that's a really yeah. good. The the brain immunologic link has been talked about for uh, well for more than I've been an immunologist. So I, I learned about that at medical school back when sort of electricity had just been invented, um, and uh, and. It's, it's kind of a – you can see, see it on a population scale, but you can't appreciate it on an individual scale. But as I've kind of alluded to, you can only help that by being as relaxed, calm, perhaps doing things like meditation, uh, or if your meditation is exercise, or even if your meditation is listening to music, not being stressed – doesn't you, know, you don't I don't really truly feel you have to do meditation sitting there doing nothing like a Tibetan monk. Mm-hmm. I think distracting yourself from the worries of your modern life is as equivocal. Yeah. 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 I'm conscious that we've only got you for a, a limited period of time. Um, yes. We always we said we'd come back to, to to your exercise, and we ask every guest this: um, if you could only do for the rest of your life, two forms of exercise or two sports, what would those two exercises or sports be? I think one is definitely hiking. So bushwalking, whatever you want to call it. It's called different things in different places. Um, 
I prefer to do multi-day walks uh, and live on instant noodles. <laughs> um, I the lighter the better, occasional occasional apple. Uh, and I think the other thing is is mountain biking, and I prefer uh, not single track, but uh, sort of wide tracks, but long distances, so forty to sixty k's. So is, is that do, wide tracks? So they in the hit trees? Yeah, because I I, I, <laughs> I I really I have um I was not PTSD, but I have an abil- inability now to do it. I almost crashed deliberately. It's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> And and so the final question then is, um, in your if you had a sort of Groundhog Day moment, this is really the best way to describe it. So there's probably some form of exercise that you've done where you've had this moment, and it's just been like if you could relive that moment over and over and over again, um, what what was that moment? Oh, that was the skill to do single track. So the the ability to weave in between trees or. You know, approach a corner at 60 k's an hour, break down, go around the corner and not have a fear. But sadly, um, being old and having that crash, I, I can't get rid of it. It's just sort of engendered in my brain. And I now slow down to some sort of ridiculous speed where 12-year-olds behind me go, hey, granddad, get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you'd love to relive that flow moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a great one. Fantastic. Um, Damon, it's been it's been great having you on. We really appreciate your time. Um absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Damon. Yeah, it's 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 tied up a lot of loose ends that we had dangling mm. from other interviews, mm. which has been really, mm. really, really helpful. So mm. really appreciate your time. Cool. Look, if you want to do any more, I'm I'm always available. Great. Ah. Thanks, Damon. Well, yeah, we I'm, may I'm well take you up. You know, anything immunological immune deficiency, too much autoimmune system, normal immune stuff, cool. Brilliant. That's, so that's it's just a the taster episode. then. This is just the taster yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Cheers. All right. Have a great evening, Damon. I will. Thanks. Thanks you. Cheers. Yeah, Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Midlife Athlete Podcast is supported by Health and Fitness Solutions. Health and Fitness Solutions is a well-established and highly respected provider of physiotherapy and podiatry services based in the City of London and Harley Street. We take pride in being able to offer a wealth of experience and expertise in dealing with a wide range of muscular skeletal conditions, from acute sprained ankles through to the more complex and long-standing issues that have failed with treatment elsewhere. We are dedicated to getting you better. For a full list of the services we offer, visit our website hfs-clinics.co.uk